You guys know how much I love my hair. I have invested quite a bit of time and effort into it over the years and more recently because my hair has been thinning and been a bit more dry. One of the things that I have been thinking about for a long time is cotton pillowcases, which seems like an odd thing to be thinking about, but cotton actually absorbs moisture and can dry out your skin and hair. If you've ever woken up with frizzy hair or a bunch of sheet marks on your face, that's because of cotton. So we did a lot of research and recently made the upgrade to 100% mulberry silk pillowcases from a brand called Blissy. Silk actually reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage because it keeps the moisture in your hair. And get this, if you're doing a skincare routine at night but then sleeping on cotton, that cotton is actually absorbing your skincare products. Cotton causes more friction against your skin than silk does, which can lead to irritation and it can accentuate the appearance of lines, wrinkles, and creases. All of this is to say sleeping on silk has already improved my hair. I no longer wake up with sheet marks on my face or creases in my hair, which was happening every morning. The 100% mulberry silk that Blissey uses is naturally hypoallergenic cooling, and unlike other silk pillowcases, Blissey's are machine, washable, and durable. This is why I chose Blissey, and this is why I love them. Blissey has a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's a ton of options for literally anyone. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissey.com forward slash well-fed and get an additional 30% off with our special code. That's blissey, so B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com forward slash well-fed. Use the code well-fed to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair will thank you. You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. What's up, friends? Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr of coconutsandkettlebells.com. I'm also the co-author of the book, Coconuts and Kettlebells. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a National Strength and Conditioning Association certified personal trainer. Today, I have the privilege of talking to Dr. Leonardo Trensande about the crazy and confusing world of endocrine disruptors and how they're impacting you and your children. Dr. Trisande is a professor of pediatrics, environmental medicine, and population health at NYU. He's also the director of the Division of Environmental Pediatrics and vice chair for research in the Department of Pediatrics at NYU. He is an internationally renowned leader in environmental health. His research focuses on the impacts of chemicals on hormones And he has led the way in documenting the economic cost for policymakers of failing to prevent diseases of environmental origin in children. This is really an ever-evolving area of health, and the recent literature is packed with information about how things that have become commonplace in our homes, in the air we breathe, in the food we eat— in the products, the furniture, even the plates we use on a daily basis are causing profound negative health consequences, not just for us, but for our children too. 
the majority of the people in our country have absolutely no clue about some of these widely used synthetic chemicals. And many have strong links to behavioral disorders, hormone disruption, chronic illness, brain disease, and cancer. So today we're going to talk about actionable tips specifically for reducing you and your family's exposure. This is really a passion of mine. I want to get more education around this because I feel like just knowing a few little things and making some of these foundational changes, we can really impact the health of the next generation. I'm personally excited to talk about some of the more confusing ones like flame retardants and PFAS and just all the plastics. So without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Trisande. Well, welcome, Dr. Trisande. It's an honor to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here. Yeah. So I have really been looking forward to this interview since I um, saw you in person in D.C. back in April. I saw you at a science symposium. And there you talked about some pretty astonishing facts about environmental toxins and the impact they have on us, but not not just us, but our children. And that was what was so impactful for me. You also talked about epigenetics. And I want to talk a little bit more about that today. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is so impactful and something that you mentioned that I hadn't heard said before was you talked about the popular quote, the dose makes the poison and why that is no longer accurate given what the research is showing, because that gets thrown around a lot, especially when we're talking about chemicals in general. So to start, can you talk me through the meaning of this quote or the origin of this quote? And if it's not the dose, then what is it that makes the poison? Um, So it's a great way to start. Great question. Um, So I was taught this adage when I went to medical school in the 1990s. So it tells you how recently it has sustained in common common parlance or discussion. Um, So this Swiss guy named Paracelsus or Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim uh, didn't have a PhD, didn't have much in the way of degrees, but he was a philosopher and quixotic scientist who uh, dabbled in stuff and became a professor for a while. And um, he experimented in mercury and dosing himself with effects. And one of the reasons um, why he came up with this phrase is he had the, his own personal experience that a little bit of something doesn't kill you, might actually help you. And a lot of it really hurts you. It's common sense, right? Uh, yes. You know, we, we, we feel that in our day-to-day experience with most things uh, in general. And um, I, I provide that background because that foundation of knowledge is not the strongest foundation of knowledge, yet it's carried on as this notion that we yeah. endorse and espouse in medical school textbooks and toxicology curricula, even to some extent to this day. And what that assumes is that you can take interpretations from high dose experiments and and extrapolate them down to low level effects in humans. So a lot of our regulations when it comes to protecting people from environmental hazards are based upon this notion that you can take an animal, you can dose it with a high level of exposure, use tissues if you don't like to work with animals or are concerned about animal rights, 
you can give a high dose of exposure, you can see what happens and you can take a straight line down to these lower levels of exposures and pinpoint what might be bad and avoid getting to that point, avoid getting to the cliff. However, with time, now there are 500 plus studies that have described that that's just not how the human body works. Mm. And um, there are lots of, with particular hormones, uh, in our bodies that are underlie every basic biological function because they're basic signaling molecules. Um, they're messages sent from the brain to the gonads, to from the gonads to the heart and, and all over the body. There are telegram systems. These telegram systems operate in roller coaster ride kind of relationships or U-shaped functions called non-monotonicity very often. And that what that that's important to understand a little bit because that means that at low levels you see nothing, at high levels you see something bad, and at the very high levels things go away. And people go, that doesn't make any sense. But when you look at the basic way cells work in the human body, you can actually understand that because you can have competing receptors, so an, an on switch and an off switch. And you start at the low level of exposure, you turn on the on switch. But then at a higher level of exposure, the off switch gets activated and knocks out the effects of the on switch. Hmm. And then you're back at darkness. And that is the basic biology really boiled down that is behind these exposure response relationships that don't follow neat straight lines. If you go up and you go down, that's a roller coaster ride. And then what we also know is that some things in the human body work at steeper than straight line relationships. And the reason that's important is a lot of these relationships, when you're down to the lowest levels of exposure, you have the biggest bang for your proverbial buck. Let's take lead. We've known about lead for 100 plus years, actually about 4,000 years. If you go back to some of the early Roman time descriptions or even before that. But the point that I'm making is that over the years, we realized that the effects of lead are the biggest at these lowest levels of exposure. That's why we really need to get rid of lead, period, that we need to treat it like a hazard rather than a risk if you will, because risk involves thinking about exposure and getting to that safe level, getting to the cliff or behind the cliff. When things are steeper than, than linear at these low levels of exposure, that means that you really actually have, you actually get even more benefit. You've already gotten so far, but you really need to take it even further because you can lose four IQ points in the first 10 micrograms per deciliter of a kid's blood lead, but you only lose like one or two out in those very high levels of exposure unless you get so high that it's really frank poisoning. Hmm. Um, and we didn't know that till recently. I think that's the other part of this story is that scientific knowledge, Paracelsus was around in the 1500s, evolves. And for 500 years, his notions stayed true in the general experience of humankind. The, I would love to think that something I say is going to last 500 years. I actually don't think that's even possible. But the, but the fact remains that this guy had some stuff that stuck that long. 
And it's okay that we evolved a new understanding. It's just that that requires a shift in the paradigm and a shift, frankly, in how we protect ourselves as a society, because particularly when it comes to chemicals that hack our hormones and mess with every biological function, we're talking about brain development, we're talking about uh, temperature, body metabolism, salt, sugar, and even sex, these antiquated rules where you use straight lines to relate everything underprotect us. They mm-hmm. don't do us a solid in terms of protecting us in our future. And in particular, we've had a rapid increase in use of chemicals that hack our hormones. A lot of them are based in petroleum-based chemistry. They come from oil and fossil fuels, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. And those are the chemicals that have come onto the scene in these past five decades, roughly, yeah, through better living, through chemistry, that have risen in exposure, where we used to talk about metals and air pollution. Now we're really talking about things from personal care products, cosmetics, food packaging, things mm-hmm. in our daily living. And we just assume, well, that's good living. You know, it's beautiful home living. It's beautiful outdoor you know, facades and things like that. Yeah. But it's a lot more complicated than we originally expected. So since we're going to dive, what we're going to do is dive into the five categories of chemicals, which according to you have the strongest evidence. And we're going to talk through how to reduce your exposure to that. Things that have become so commonplace, which is crazy. I do feel like it's more recently that all of a sudden that we've seen this this, expo- this explosion of of the use of these kind of chemicals. Um, but before we do, because we are going to kind of dive deep, can you talk yeah. through exactly what is the endocrine system? And you also said we have hormone disrupting chemicals. So how do those chemicals actually impact our endocrine system? Yeah, so hormone is an endocrine go hand in hand. Endocrine refers to the hormones in our body. These are the traffic signals, if you will, that underlie all these basic biological functions. Um, you know, they tell our body to grow. They tell our heart to slow down. They they uh, facilitate uh, reproduction happening or not happening. And so every basic biological function you can think of has the endocrine system as its core. That probably annoys a cardiologist to hear that or annoys an infectious disease specialist because they like to think their stuff is the most important, right? I'm not trying to compete with them. It's just that that's the, the way of human biology works. When you talk about endocrine disrupting chemicals, we're talking about synthetic chemicals that hack our basic biological functioning and contribute to disease and disability. So it's messing with endocrine function part one, contributing to disease part two. And um, we have now rapid evolution of the scientific evidence. The first society report from the endocrine society, the, the International Society for Hormones, was about endocrine disrupting chemicals was in 2009. So just Mm. to reinforce the fact that this is such a new phenomenon, frankly, and it's a new scientific understanding. Then the World Health Organization, United Nations Environment Program put this issue as a global public health threat in 2012. The Endocrine Society put its second scientific report in 2015. The American Academy of Pediatrics put a report out in 2018, emphasizing chemicals that disrupt hormones in food. So this is a rapidly growing area. We only have tested maybe 5% of known endocrine of known chemicals for endocrine disrupting effects. 
And yet we already know of at least a thousand of the 80 to 300,000 chemicals used in our daily lives that disrupt hormones and contribute to disease. That number is probably much bigger. Um, and we have to focus on evolving our scientific understanding. But the good news is we have strong understanding of these five categories and we can take safe and simple steps to reduce these exposures. They don't require a PhD in chemistry and they don't have to break the proverbial bank. Mm. There's a lot of back and forth on the internet and you know this about um, just all of this, right? The safety and, oh, everything's a chemical. I mean, I've heard, you know, right. I've heard that so much, like everything's a chemical. It's just, you know, what it, you know, within moderation. So when you're talking about synthetic chemicals, you're talking about, because obviously everything is a chemical, like, okay, right. we got it. But what is the difference between these synthetic chemicals and are all synthetic chemicals harmful? So let me just take a little pirouette around the natural chemicals that are out there too. They can hack hormones. They're designed to hack hormones. What we're talking about here is chemicals that were not designed with the human body in mind. And it's an inadvertent, I don't, I don't wag my finger at the chemical industry. I just am I'm presenting the facts as they are. These are chemicals that were designed, you know, for the chair you see in the background here, for the, you know, the the various things that the, the you know, fortunately I don't, I use stainless steel bottles and glass for my drinking. So I don't use plastic unless I absolutely have to, but these are chemicals that were designed to make our life faster and easier. And I don't, I'm not condemning every chemical out there as problematic, let alone every synthetic chemical. I enjoy, you know, I fly in, in airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> That's, chemistry, making our lives better. We're talking about a balance between what we need to do to live the modern lifestyle we have. And then we have an emerging science that's telling us that we have gone too far and we've really misbalanced our priorities here. And that's, you know, when you're talking about obesity, diabetes, cognitive deficits, even autism, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, infertility, mm. endometriosis, certain cancers, breast, prostate, thyroid, that are all linked to these chemicals of concern, ovary to add another. You, that wasn't on the radar when we were designing these chemicals. And we've had experiences where we've done the right thing to regulate them. So I remember hearing the story of diethylstilbestrol, pharmaceutical given to pregnant women with the intention to prolong pregnancy and reverse unwanted consequences. There was a rare cancer that appeared in young girls as a result of that exposure. And we got diethylstilbestrol out of the food and drug, you know, the drug, the pharmacopoeia. We did the same thing with DDT, pesticide being sprayed all over. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring is all about that. It was causing concerns in, in wildlife, and it, we realized, oh, my goodness, this is actually having consequences for human health, too. It's Rachel Carson's legacy to this day it limits the use of DDT, except in certain parts of sub-Saharan Africa, where malaria is a big thing. And there are, there, and there are real trade-offs we have to make in all things in life. I, I'm not dismissing that. But we have misbalanced our priorities 
And we have, an, we have a variety of these chronic conditions that have just increased and increased and increased. And it's not the human genome changing. That's for sure. Mm. That human genome doesn't change that fast over one generation. What has changed are links in individuals between the two. Mm. Okay, so let's jump into the five categories of chemicals that have the strongest evidence. Um, and I think the first one we can maybe jump into is fire retardants, which... Yep. I feel like it's probably really confusing for people because it almost seems like it's with like not within our control. So how can we what are they and then how can we reduce exposure? So the original flame retardants um, were put into furniture because of a California law called TB 117 that was intended to save lives. This isn't but again in the 70s, people were smoking in their beds. Um, I remember the right. apartment across from where I lived growing up, somebody died because they were smoking in their bed, fire went raging. Oh, and awful. the idea was, yeah, terrible stuff. And we put furniture in these pieces of, uh, we put rather flame retardants in the furniture because we thought we were gonna slow the spread of fires and save lives. Unfortunately, it never did work out that way. It doesn't slow the spread of fires sufficiently to save lives. And what we know about the structure of these chemical flame retardants, the original ones are called polybrominated diphenyl ethers. They have a bunch of bromines on them. And this nature of the compound is such that it looks a lot like thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone is important to body temperature, heart rate, bone development, but most importantly, brain development in young kids. Mm. And when you rely on mom's thyroid hormone until the second trimester of pregnancy. And mom's thyroid hormone is just a little bit off, even just a little mistuning of the violin can lead to uh, cognitive consequences in babies, not to mention autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And study after study has shown that brominated flame retardants hack thyroid hormone and make babies not as smart and not as well able to contribute to society in the long term. The good news is California reversed the law. It doesn't require flame retardants to be added. And so, and furniture labels now say flame retardant added or flame retardant not added. So consumers can look at the label and make sure whether they have something or not. If you have old furniture at home, don't fear. If it's torn or obviously open, that's the biggest part because they sprayed these flame retardants into the inner layers. Okay. So it's not on the outer coating necessarily. It's inside. Generally speaking, yes. Okay. And so that's where you can use a cloth cover. I don't love a plastic cover. If that's your only option, take it. Mm -hmm. But I prefer that I have issues with plastic that we'll talk about, but the cloth covering can keep the dust from getting out and into your body, also opening the air and recirculating the air to get rid of these persistent organic pollutant dust and using a wet mop is a straightforward way to get rid of some of these chemical dusts that accumulate in homes. Okay, so so flame retardants aren't necessarily 
something. So say, you know, whatever, I have a couch or everybody does. Everybody has an old chair, an old couch. It's probably yep. been sprayed, right? So it's not necessarily continuing to put, for some reason, I was thinking it was more in the air. It was more of what, what we were constantly breathing. We sit down right. and we breathe it, but it's more of the dust that gets into the air and then settles on the floor. Is Am I hearing that right? Yeah. And kids with their hand to mouth behaviors, they obviously yes. magnify their own exposure that way and dust unsettles and resettles. So we, we inhale it and ingest it. Even as adults, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to be so to make people too much more self-conscious about hand-to-mouth behavior, but we all inadvertently do it, hand-to-face behavior at least, tens and hundreds of times a day. So that yeah. contributes substantially to exposure. Listen up for a new offer for free electrolytes for everyone, even if you've already made a purchase. When you are dehydrated, you need more than just water. Your body also needs minerals. That's because water absorption in your cells is dependent upon electrolytes like sodium, magnesium, and potassium, and you lose electrolytes when you sweat and when you go to the bathroom and you have to replenish them through food and supplementation. If you're active or you follow a whole foods diet or you're stressed and struggling with adrenal dysfunction, you need to be thinking about electrolyte replacement. Deficiencies can show up as dizziness, muscle cramps, headaches, fatigue, and sleep disturbances, or those stars when you go from seated to standing, especially on workout days, which was my experience. I let that go on for far too long, and now that I replace my electrolytes, I can tell you that I have not had that happen in so long. I also have much better recovery and can handle more workouts. Element is by far the best electrolyte supplementation Coming from somebody who spent years in the endurance world, I can say that confidently. They make grab-and-go electrolyte replacement with no sugar, gluten fillers, artificial ingredients, and it's paleo-friendly. It's travel-friendly too, and great for kids. My kids love it. We even took it with us on vacation. And everyone gets a free gift with purchase. Element comes in boxes of 30, and there is free shipping on all orders. And now all orders will get a free eight pack, which has all the flavors of Element. To get it, go to drinklmnt.com forward slash wellfed, and make sure to use our code wellfed for the free sample eight pack. Again, that's drink element.com forward slash well-fed. Okay. And are flame retardants typically included in mattresses? Because this has been a big area of concern, I think, for the majority of the population. Once it came out, the flame retardants probably aren't the best for our health. So there are a variety of issues with mattresses that don't just relate to flame retardants that you have to think about. Okay. Um, generally speaking, um, I don't suggest that as the number one priority. I focus on furniture in part because there are coverings you can put on to mitigate the dust from being emitted out of those mattresses. Now, are there alternatives? Uh, yes. And, you know, there are, we can, we'll get into pesticide use as well, because sometimes the, um, ingredients have been sprayed because of the way the cotton has come. Oh man. You know, um, yeah. That you might want to think about, but at the same time, again, the biggest source, even for pesticide exposure, I'd say is food consumption. Yeah. So we can talk about, you know, eating organic and some of the benefits of that, but I'm getting off topic. Let's focus on flame <laughs> retardants for a minute. Right. So my 
suggested priorities when it comes to flame retardants are, um, and there, there are replacement flame retardants, these brominated flame retardants that have come on the scene since. And what the concerns are already out there that some of them are as bad as the brominated flame retardants. They're just using phosphorus-based flame retardants instead. Um, and I'm getting nerdy about the periodic table. I apologize. I was a chemistry <laughs> major as an undergrad, so you have to forgive me a little bit. But suffice it to say that um, there are some uses for flame retardants that are necessary that we have to think about. Like if I'm on a plane, I don't want the plane to burn up with all that electrical activity. Um, there might be some uses that you just have to accept as a trade-off to consider. Um, there are steps you can take to limit places in the home where you might be concerned about it. Um, I personally have bought an organic mattress, but that doesn't mean that I advise everyone to do that as the highest priority step, because the key for me is to focus on that low-hanging fruit, mm -hmm. the things that are most effective at reducing exposure. And again, they don't require you being a PhD and searching the ingredients of a mattress yeah. and uh, don't break the bank. Yeah. That's a, that's another problem is it's hard to do the research. And honestly, when you, with my first kid, we did not do, I didn't, wasn't thinking about it. We bought a, a car seat and it has right. flame retardants. But then with my second kid that came on my radar, we got one that, you know, is flame retardant free, but is at least the, <laughs> three times the cost of the one we bought my daughter. Yeah. And so it's hard because you make these, these big investments, you have all these kids and then you're like, I can't replace everybody's car seat right now. Um, and yeah. so I, I wonder, can, you know, what are those items that if we're going to, so basically from here on out, it's like, we look and see, is this, does this contain flame retardants or does this not? And we just try to prioritize replacing things when we need to um, with things that don't have flame retardants. Would you agree with that? Right. And I, I would suggest the priority is on things that are hand to mouth or touchable, like things you touch, right? Are, yeah. you know, it's, it's good old, you know, common sense is, is, are, is behind the principles of exposure science too that you, you just, you inhale dust, you also ingest dust when you touch it and you put it in your mouth, if you will. Yeah. And that's similar with, you know, so a lot of, you know, we're going to talk about plastic at some point. I'm going to allude to this in, in kids' toys. You know, I we have a lot of wood-based play things. Now, my kids are older now, so we're past this period, but um, we're in the same, we were in the same mindset. Mm -hmm. when we were having kids and, and, and they were younger, that you yeah. really need to think about uh, what are the pathways that are going to magnify the exposure. And you have to think about what people might put in their bodies. Yeah. Can you smell flame retardants? Because, okay, Oops. so Sorry. so why does furniture, what are we smelling when we smell like the new furniture or the new car smell? You're probably smelling phthalates. Oh, gosh. Okay. And that is not a fun thing to think about. There are other fragrances and a lot of these chemicals go under the radar, particularly in cosmetics, because there's uh, a loophole that basically allows companies to trade secret that thing away. They don't have to tell you what's in it, which is painful to talk about because it's disturbing. You would think that our cosmetics come under some more scrutiny than that, but no. Yeah. Um, but back to the new car smell, 
is phthalates. And you're, I hate to break it to you, we've all dealt with this a little bit with the COVID pandemic because a lot of people have lost their smell. Your smell is not that sensitive to start with. I hate to break it to everybody. Your smell is really for the high intensity. So before you smell it, it's causing issues. Oh man. That's yeah. the problem. So you cannot rely on your smell as your, your hound dog scent. We're not hound dogs. Mm. Interesting. All right. So let's jump into plastics because this is, yeah. you've already alluded to it many times. So what, what, a, they what were the future, type. right? Yeah. Right. It's very convenient. It's everywhere now, which that does make it overwhelming. But what I know there are certain plastics that are worse than others. So, how, you know, how can we reduce our exposure there? So I've evolved my thinking since I wrote Sicker, Fat or Poor a little bit. And that's because we probably are way past the tipping point in terms of our capacity as a planet to tolerate plastics, not to mention human existence. So I am going to talk about safer plastics if you will, but let me just fundamentally put something out there that we need to fundamentally renegotiate our relationship with plastics. We've mm-hmm. gotten lulled into plastics are okay, plastics make life easier when there are simple things. Like, you, you, do, you, do I need a plastic water bottle in the office? I have a stainless steel container. I can literally go to the faucet, uh, you know, or the cooler and pull out some water. Easy. No problem. If I'm on an airplane, I actually usually bring my stainless steel water bottle right. for security, fill it before I get on the plane. Same. Is yeah. that really a pain? Um, it's a little time. I all right, one minute, two minutes in the day. Uh, you're waiting for the plane longer than that in general. So um, do, are there times I've had to take a plastic water bottle on a plane? Yeah. Because I've run out of water, I can't bring that much water in with me on the plane. You know, I run marathons. Do I do have I had a plastic water thing when I've done long runs solo? Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's about thinking about do I really need it? What's essential? And that is unfortunately the name of the game now. Glass is a good way to go at home. Stainless steel is another good way. And if you're going to use plastic please 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 don't microwave your plastic there are two things going on there particularly with food chemicals are not bound to plastic all the time the polymer is of course the core of plastic it's a a weave of the same compound like a dna sequence except it's chemical a a a a a that's the sequence it just put it on a big chain and just run out but there are other chemicals added as additives that soften the chemical or harden the plastic or do other things to make it work, right? Those Mm -hmm. chemicals are not directly bad and they get into food. And if you heat up plastic, you're inviting that plastic chemical to leave the layer. And that's absorbing into you ultimately via your food. Machine dishwashing plastic, also not really a big fan here because you're using harsh chemicals, you're using high temperatures, and you're absorbing the, pl- the plastic in you, literally. Now, I, I want to stop everybody who's listening to this and say, because probably people start beating themselves like, oh, gosh, I did. What did I do for years and years and yeah, years? I and I think we have to take a step back and say, these chemicals leave the body quickly. 
generally speaking, many of them. They're non-persistent. We call them. They get out of body one to three days, particularly the phthalates that are in softer plastics. And we'll talk about the bisphenols and harder plastics a little later. Okay. What the, but the changes you can see by reducing your exposures can be visible in multiple studies in days. Hmm. Your hormone levels shift in weeks. Your chronic disease risk decreases over months and maybe years. So there are these short, medium, and long-term benefits to reducing exposure. So as much as you've done things that you worry to yourself about the past, there are plenty of regrets I have about my life in general, about things I've done over the years, right? But right. that isn't changing what I'm doing in the here and the now. And where right. even with folks with chronic diseases, there actually are studies suggesting that doing things in the here and the now can actually benefit you in the long term when it comes to your mm -hmm. chronic disease management. So there are these short, medium, and long-term benefits to doing things like reducing your plastics, particularly the ones with the recycling numbers three, six, and seven. Three are for phthalates. They are chemicals that antagonize testosterone. They mess with your metabolism, making you literally fatter because it diverts how the calories are processed in the body by changing the expression of proteins. We're gonna talk about epigenetics at some point. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. It's an epigenetic mechanism. It's not changing the DNA code. It's changing signals on DNA and changing how things are expressed. And then that affects your metabolism in real time. Um, six is for styrene, a known carcinogen. Hmm. And seven is for bisphenols, which we'll talk about. They're estrogen mimics. We'll get into more later. But three, six, and seven are the ones to avoid. The other numbers they run from one to seven are better. Um, seven has some bioplastics, mind you, but we don't know a lot about bioplastics. In particular, there's some concerns that there might be chemical mimics of hormones that are in the plastic lining of those materials, they may be worse. So I tend to avoid them altogether. Um, so that's the main message about plastic. Mm -hmm. Use less of it, don't microwave it, don't machine dishwash it, and follow the numbers in the recycling triangle. My mind was going when you said machine washing, because I was like, are, do I have plastic in my dishwasher? I mean, I think I do. Like the 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 trays are plastic. So is that getting into the water and getting into our plates or is that kind of being washed away? Uh, good question. Don't have the definite answer yeah. to that. I think compared to the direct plastic in your dishwasher, you know, it, it's, it's less of a problem. Got it. I'm not saying it's zero, but it's, um, it, it's, you know, you would assume that gets out in the runoff to a yeah. fair extent. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to ask about, I, I feel like it is very hard. So you've mentioned the three, six, and the seven, but when women are, women and men are going through the grocery store, what are we, are we looking for those numbers on the backs of containers and stuff? And then what about, I, what's really frustrating for me is that a lot of like really healthful foods like vegetables and stuff were either transported to the grocery store in plastic or, you know, they're wrapped in plastic. So even when we see like a plastic bag that's got broccoli in it, fresh broccoli, organic broccoli inside this plastic bag, does it have the number on that bag? Not, not always. My message here is 
we have to work on that with the manufacturer ultimately, and that's going to require better consumer advocacy and ultimately policymaking, which is a big message here in this space. But at least take the food out when you can. Yeah. You can't control your packaging upstream, but you can control what you do with it. Hmm. Okay, so we hear a lot about estrogen mimicking chemicals. You have you started touching on that with BPA and bisphenol. So what are these estrogen mimicking chemicals? Are all plastics estrogen mimicking? And if not, you know, let's talk about the ones that are. No, it's a mix of things. So plastics are a heterogeneous group with a lot of different chemicals based on how they're designed. So I I will generally bulk the chemical issues into soft plastics, phthalates, and hard plastics, bisphenols. So polycarbonate plastics are made of bisphenols, sometimes bisphenol A, but now we know of 140 or so bisphenols that are in many cases chemically similar and may have the same or worse consequences. So BPS is a prototype for that issue. So BPA-free is not necessarily bisphenol-free. That's a big message here. Oh, good. Yeah, lovely (laughs) to think about, right? Again, it goes back to why you reduce your plastic use, as I said earlier, right? Right. But, you know, what we know about BPS is is as estrogenic, as persistent in the environment and as toxic embryos, lovely to think about. But let me uh, let me take a step back. So how what we know about BPA probably translates over to the whole category of bisphenols, though I don't know that for certain. What I can tell you is that BPA is a prototype, what we call obesogen, one of 50 or so chemicals known to make us fatter. BPA makes makes fat cells bigger, disrupts the function of adiponectin, a protein that protects the heart. And it's a synthetic estrogen, a little history there. Remember I mentioned diethylstilbestrol, the pharmaceutical, the synthetic estrogen pharmaceutical that caused cancer in young girls? Yes, right. BPA was considered as DES. It could have been the BPA story better than the DES story. The problem was BPA was not potent enough as a pharmaceutical. So they would have had to get these honking big doses of BPA to get the same effects that they were getting in DES. So they went with DES as opposed to BPA. So uh, I make that parallel because it tells you BPA is probably not good. Um, You know, estrogen can have sex specific effects on body mass, so that can disrupt. So phthalates are a more of a mix of anti-androgen antagonizing the testosterone, the male sex hormone, as opposed, and some are estrogenic too. So it's not as clean as some plastics are estrogenic, some plastics are androgenic. And I think that misses, that's like a two hormone universe where there's like a thousand hormones in the universe that are problematic. So it oversimplifies a little bit for the, for the nerd out there who's listening to this. But let's get back to safe and simple steps, right? So how do you avoid bisphenol exposures? You avoid canned food consumption because bisphenol A is used in a lot of polycarbonate can linings even to this day. Certainly say no to the seven recycling number. We talked about that earlier. And those thermal paper receipts you get in the coffee shop and supermarket. Yes. That glossy layer is made often of bisphenols. A little trivia question, many years ago, it was lead that was used in those it's frightening in the inks. Oh my gosh. But they changed it to thermal ink. And so they used bisphenols instead. A little bit of, 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 of or sorry, 
it's not in the thermal paper, I apologize. It's in the can linings. They used to use lead to solder the cans as opposed to bisphenols. Oh my gosh. To solder, solder the cans. A little bit sad. Um, but it tells you that we've lived a chemical history and, and learned the hard way. Mm. But these thermal paper receipts, touching them, will absorb bisphenol directly into your bloodstream. And also that hand and mouth behavior I talked about is another pathway of exposure. Wow. Okay. So what are the problem with estrogen? Like why? So estrogen mimicking, I'm assuming means that once they get into our body, it looks like or mimics estrogen. And if that's true, what is the problem with having an excess of estrogen in our body? A lot of different problems. Estrogen isn't just a reproductive hormone. Um, it's a heart hormone. It's a metabolic hormone. We talked about this a little bit already, that it affects how people grow. Um, it can also influence the brain. The brain is a sexually dimorphic organ. And so sex-specific play patterns have been disrupted by phthalates, which antagonize testosterone. And it's hard to say we don't have all the studies in hand to support it, but it could also affect the developing brains of young kids in other ways as well. So it's we're, we've already ticked off the brain, the metabolic, metabolic function, and the reproductive organs. So, you know, when you're talking about hormones, you're talking about things that are used, they're signaling molecules. They're not just sex hormones. Mm-hmm. Sex hormones are misleading because they were first characterized for the purposes of sexual differentiation. But the fact is, they serve a lot of purposes in the human body. So when you hack a hormone, the consequences are multifocal. A lot of the chemical industry narrative is, well, it can't be that these chemicals do so much to the human body. Yes, they can. Because you mess with hormones, you're messing with the wrong thing. Yeah. So what's the link between, I believe BPA has a link to cancer, but like yes. the link between BPAs and specifically breast cancer, why is that? Because that's kind of been a big area of research. People are talking about it. Some people are trying to dismiss it. So right. what's the connection there? Breast cancer is not one type of cancer. There are estrogen receptors expressed typically on breast, breast tissue. And so breast cancer, when it overgrows, can express that estrogen receptor mm. in substantial amounts. And it can grow as a result of estrogen in the human body. Mm. So if you have estrogenic compounds, you can magnify and accelerate the growth of breast cancer tissue. It's ironic that some pharmaceuticals to stem the tide of breast cancer are actually anti-estrogenic. They're hormone disrupting by design. Wow. And I have no problem with that. You can use the hormone system to combat disease, but when you're externally for the purpose of selling things, messing with hormones and contributing to the proliferation of breast cancer cells, that's a problem. And and the ovary is another organ that's very estrogen responsive. And there's hmm. substantial literature already suggesting BPA may contribute to ovarian cancer as well. Wow. Okay, so I want to jump into this idea of epigenetics because yesterday I was actually, I got on some sort of kick and I was reviewing some studies about 
And I was working very hard to understand them because gene expression is not my forte. It's not my expertise. But I was looking at how certain, there was some really interesting literature. I love exercise and fitness and some really interesting literature about that connected working out with how, like how regular exercise actually altered DNA methylation, which regulates gene expression in sperm and egg cells. So in other words, it was kind of saying, you know, if you exercise, before you get pregnant or before you have offspring, you're essentially altering the gene expression of your offspring, which was like, you know, that's really awesome stuff. But it also got me thinking about how exposure, like negative exposure, negative health behaviors and or exposure to things like BPA may alter gene expression of our offspring too. So- How, what research do we have right now? Not just how these chemicals or plastics impact women who are pregnant, you know, who are about to have children, but even before that, do we have literature about the gene expression of offspring? In animal studies, you can actually, with one chemical exposure, change the methyl signals, these methylation we talked about, on genes for seven generations down. without any other generation being exposed. And that's because you, you know, what happens when you, you know, when you make um, oocytes or sperm cells, you split, you eventually split the DNA so that one strand and all the signals, so the genetic code comes with the signals, the methylation, there's, there's lots of other, signals that get put on DNA, don't get me wrong, that changes how they're expressed. That passes across a generation. There are studies that have shown that bisphenol A makes animals fatter by disrupting the color coding gene, by methylating the color coding gene, such you can not only see the color coding change, but you see the, the, the animals get bigger and bigger. Hmm. And the good news is you can reverse some of that. Um, Folate is a methyl donor and actually reverses some of the effects of bisphenol A. So it goes to your point that lifestyle, healthy lifestyle and unhealthy lifestyle compete at some level in the programming of genes that changes not only how you, your body reacts, but how your gametes react and ultimately contributes to effects that span generations to follow. Now, all of this is fluid. That's the other thing. That's what's so good about this news. You can change your exposure and you can change how genes are expressed. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's probably not as simple as you can change it permanently because you have to keep up the healthy lifestyle, but that's always been an issue that we have to keep in mind, is that we have to sustain these healthy lifestyle interventions to improve our, our, our life and the life of those who may follow us. I love adaptogens. I love them. I take them every day. I used to be that way with coffee. Let's be honest. I would need it every morning, but now I love the feeling that I get from adaptogens and it's a much more healthful daily habit. That's what we all want, more, right? More, more healthful daily habits that actually supports my body's physiology. 
Adaptogens are herbs and functional mushrooms that help your body adapt to stress. They essentially boost your resistance and tolerance when it comes to emotional and physical stress. They are good for stress support, adrenal dysfunction, hormone imbalances, anxiety, fatigue, you name it, adaptogens can help. The more I research adaptogens, the more I realize the easiest and best way to enjoy adaptogens is with superfood blends that can be added to water. Now I drink Organifi Red Juice three to four times a week, mostly mid-morning, and it's incredible for energy support and focus. It's a red berry antioxidant blend that has cordyceps, rhodiola, and reishi. They also have a green juice, which has ashwagandha in it. It's great for stress and recovery, especially if you're working out on a regular basis. And my favorite, is Organifi Gold. It's my favorite nightcap. It's a sweet little warm drink. You can take at night. It's got reishi. If you've got anxiety or your mind is spinning at night, drink that as your nightcap. It is so good and it's calming. All of Organifi's superfood adaptogen blends are 100% certified organic and contain high quality ingredients. And they're also free of fillers and they taste really good and have clinical doses of adaptogens. You can support your body, energy, immunity, and stress with Organifi. Organifi takes pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. Go to Organifi.com forward slash well-fed and use the code well-fed for 20% off. That's Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash well-fed and use the code well-fed for 20% off your entire order. Okay. So I kind of want to, this just hit me. So if we're drinking water from a plastic water bottle, right? the plastic is leached into that water, right? Especially if it's in a hot car. And so when we drink the water, we have nanoparticles of plastic in and we're ingesting that is that correct or we're well, let me there's two types of issues there's okay. the what i'm gonna i'm gonna use a phrase from dick cheney or whoever really gave it to dick cheney but there were there are known knowns and unknown unknowns right the chemicals i'm talking about are the known knowns they're di- directly absorbed from plastic these are chemicals that are not nanoplastics these are these are directly molecules. You can't see them under a microscope. Hmm. It's just way deeper than that. It's just, these are little atoms of individual atoms that have broken off. When we're talking about nano and microplastics, we're talking about big, much bigger chains, like almost medium-sized polymers, things that have just gotten half-baked, if you will. Those are also visible. They're, they're not also visible. They are visible hmm. as opposed to the chemicals directly absorbed into human tissue. The way I like to say it is if you see microplastics or nanoplastics in people, there are billions more molecules that have already absorbed that are maybe even more problematic and are actually better understood. So hmm. the unknown unknowns are the microplastics and nanoplastics to me. The known knowns are the phthalates and bisphenols and other chemicals that we haven't talked about PFAS. They're fluoropolymer plastics made of PFAS to boot. Um, Those are the, those are where actually the evidence is so much stronger. So the microplastics, nanoplastics gets all the attention, gets all the pizzazz because you can see it in turtles. You can see it in humans. You can see it in breast milk and blood and feces and all these various biological tissues. I've even done some research in that space. Yeah. 
and we need to study the effects, don't get me wrong, of the microplastics and nanoplastics, it may be a problem of its own doing, in addition, separate from the chemicals absorbed in microplastics. But we don't know a lot mm. about those yet. Okay, how do we get them? And then we'll jump into PFAS, but how, how yeah. if, if we're absorbing, you said the body does a pretty good job of getting it out. So then what is it that's left over or residual or getting stuck? Or is that an unknown? Well, the problem is a lot of these chemicals, we haven't hit on this so hard yet, but let's hit it. They hit and run. The, um, you know, the chemical hits, leaves the body. And it's like, ah, you know, I'm gone. No problem. <laughs> but the human body, that epigenetic mark or that, that change in hormone function stays. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's the issue, particularly with windows of development. Now, we've talked a lot about moms and kids. It, they're, they're a huge part of the story. However, life is a window of susceptibility to endocrine disrupting chemicals. We've seen phthalates contribute to cardiovascular mortality in adults. Cancers happen in relationship to adult exposures or maybe earlier exposures. We don't know, but the entire lifespan is this window of susceptibility. Mm, okay. So let's talk about the chemical of the hour, which is PFAS. I feel like everybody all of a sudden is talking about it. And even me, just more recently, like within the last year, I was like, what's what do people keep saying? PFAS? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. PFAS is what it means. A mouthful. It is a mouthful. So talk to me about what it is and where those are hiding. So let's just boil down what the PFAS stands for, perfluoroalkyl substances or per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. We've talked about bromine in the periodic chart. I'm going to nerd even more. We're going down the periodic chart to fluorine, down the, t down the column. Something about that column ain't right. That's all I got to say. <laughs> but just moving on, these fluorine-based compounds, carbon-fluorine bonds are very polar. And the reason why that matters is when you have some electrical differences in the way the, the molecule is distributed, it makes things not stick in real life. So, you know, you're making an omelet, you're on a nonstick cooking pan, it doesn't stick because of those carbon-fluorine bonds. Mm. They make things not stick. There are other ways not to do it. We've had cast iron and stain, you know, and there's olive oil with stainless steel. It works pretty damn well last I checked. Yeah. But just to go on, these PFAS, because of that carbon fluorine bond, not only don't stick to things, they don't leave the body very easily. They're called, many of them are called forever chemicals because these long chain in particular PFAS, eight to 12 carbon atom based things, they stay in the body for decades, years, and they have long-term consequences and they're just impossible to eradicate. So in oil and water resistant clothing, stainless, you know, not stainless steel, nonstick cooking material. And the water supply is a place where a lot of these PFAS have ended up. So hundred million Americans have enough PFAS in their water supply to contribute to disease and disability. 95% of Americans have it. I probably do. I haven't checked, but I'm afraid to check a little bit, but yeah. you don't change. The message here I'm going to say also is you shouldn't necessarily get tested for these chemicals. Um, it's expensive right now to get tested for. PFAS are starting to get tested for because the National Academy of Sciences, the U.S. Scientific Oversight Panel, 
actually suggest we should start to do that in highly exposed communities and people with disease. Um, I think that's actually good progress because it'll mean that the test cost will go down and it frankly will be an insurance. Mm -hmm. And that means that you can start to do things and try to reduce the level and watch people. But right now, I don't, if you're, if you ask me on the street, should I get my self tested for PFAS? I would say, watch out because it's expensive. It's probably outside the, and it's not insured. So my advice would be to hold off till this issue gets addressed, but I actually think the future will be, we'll start testing for them. Hmm. So got a little on a tangent there, but these nonstick chemicals, they stay around in the human body for years and decades, and they've been associated with certain cancers. They've been associated with smaller babies that are less well able to contribute to society, or they are obese or diabetic. Adult diabetes and adult obesity has been linked. The first and I have to give credit where credit's due. The first place where we found this to be an issue was in these very high level exposures from a community in West Virginia that's been profiled in a movie called Dark Waters by Mark Ruffalo. Highly recommend it. Um, great movie that provides the context. But the fact is, we all now have low levels of PFAS at effects that are at levels enough to contribute to disease in practically all of us. And that's a tragedy. Is it just is it just nonstick pans like just Teflon? Is it any hiding anywhere else or is it widely used anywhere else? Oil and water resistant clothing is the other big place. And okay. it's over engineering. You don't need PFAS to make things oil and water resistant. The companies, even the clothing companies have resisted this. Um, mm. It puts me as a, in a tricky spot as a runner because I probably get sold things that are containing these materials and no, finding right, out where they went. are. Yeah, it, it's very tricky, yeah. and um, we've got a long way to go. I mean, um, one of the things reasons I like Patagonia is not just that they um, are working on climate change, mm -hmm. but they have actually taken one of the public steps to address PFAS openly and say, you know, we have a problem, we have to address it. And we're working on addressing it. it may not be addressed right away, but they're trying. And a lot of companies are putting attention on this, especially as the Biden administration is really putting the policy uh, hammer into play. OK, Patagonia. OK, that's a good one to know, actually, because I was like, oh, man, now I got to go do all this research. <laughs> the companies. Yeah. Um, so what my about message is just say one thing. If I had to prioritize, sorry to interrupt. If I had to prioritize, I'd focus on getting rid of the state, the, the focusing on right. putting cast iron and stainless steel in. Clothing to me is a whole nother act and that I wouldn't go throwing out your clothing right away. Mm -hmm. I just want to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, it's stainless steel and cast iron. It's going to have the biggest bang for your buck in reducing your exposure compared to, to nonstick. And um, ceramic pans are totally taking over right now. How do you, uh, besides not being as durable, which has kind of been my experience, I just bought some caraway pans because I felt like some of mine were as durable. But what is your overall um, experience with ceramic pans? So ceramic have some other issues and some of them have metals in them. They okay. are better, right. I would say. Um, it's been... It's been tricky because there are some ceramic pans that have been sprayed with PFAS that I've heard about recently. I didn't know about this till very recently. Interesting. Because I used to say ceramic was better. Mm -hmm. It's hard to rule that out completely. 
Right. Um, there are, you know, glass. I'm not going to name a major manufacturer of glass containers that go in the oven, but <laughs> you can find glass to do it, yeah. to do what you would do, and it doesn't break. Yeah. That's all I got to say. <laughs> you got a few like options it. out there. Yeah. And always, you know, this is I have to kind of remind myself this because I even was recently made purchases and I'm like, why did I check if it had flame retardants? Like it just so um, you can't you always, guilt trip yourself completely. Yeah. There's got you got to give yourself some grace. Yeah. And I do. I just, you know, I was like, well, why did I just make that purchase if I didn't do the research? So, you know, do the research, reach out to companies because I did reach out to Caraway and they were like, here's all of our testing. Like we do third party testing. A lot of companies now, especially even skincare products. That's why I joined on with Beauty Counter and started really using that because it was like, OK, this company actually goes the extra mile and does the right. testing for the contaminations and the heavy metals because that's not required. You know, we with pans and with anything, it's not required for them to necessarily even disclose any of that information. So that's why companies are, we kind of got to find the companies and then stick with those. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into, we'll round it out here with um, pesticides. Yeah. We talked about that before. A lot of people say organic is just a marketing term. Oh boy. So what's the difference between non-organic and organic and how are pesticides impacting us? So when we're talking about the health effects of pesticides, we're talking about the health effects of organic pesticides that are used in, in conventional agriculture for many years. We know that pesticides hack thyroid hormone affect brain development. They're also known to contribute to cancers. Uh, in some cases, we've seen benefits in terms of reduction of cancer in organic food consumers, at least in one study. So there are many potential benefits uh, that are known to eating organic. You can rapidly reduce pesticide levels in high income as low as in low income families by eating organic through interventions. So it doesn't have to break the bank. We've seen market share fundamentally change when right. it comes to organic food past decade. Really, I used to not suggest it to my patient population at Bellevue Hospital, public hospital here in New York City. Now I do because you can see the price points having equilibrated because as yeah. as market shares increased, companies have realized that they have to get in the game and use the economies of scale and reduce the cost of organic food. There are pesticides sometimes used in so-called organic food. If they are and they're less used than, than others, it's the older metal-based or other things where they've or use natural methods to a large extent without pesticides, period, to reduce chemical exposure. So it's not to say that there isn't potentially arsenic or metal in organic while or organic rice of certain types, but some of that actually has more to do with the water supply mm. that where this is grown that's likely to be more contributory than any pesticide they might use. And what we know about organic, about these carbon-based pesticides, unfortunately, is they are particularly toxic based on levels detected in people, independent of the metals that, you, that have also been measured in those studies. So they've been able to look at all the potential exposures together uh, when they're studying the brain development effects. And these are things that you can see not just in cognitive tests, but in brain images where the frontal and parietal cortex is shrunk 
compared to other kids where it's bigger. And that matches the neuropsychological tests where they see the higher exposed kids with less cognitive and other processing skills. Okay, so you said that there's been a study where they look at kids who have had higher exposure to pesticides, let's say, is it through food? Well, through food or spray, spraying in homes. There was a time where it was allowed to spray these pesticides in um, as well. So the kids who have higher exposure have smaller brains and more cognitive. Smaller parts of the brains. Okay. But parts of the brains that are crucial for brain development. Wow. That's, that is crazy. Um, my last question for you is I just recently saw a study and this is something that hit, I don't take a ton of medications, but I, ibuprofen is one of the things that I take occasionally. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was thinking about it and I'm always trying to look and see like what's in the coding and what's what, you know, where, cause there's so many things that aren't disclosed. And so I was kind of doing a little bit of research on it. And I found a news article that talked about how patients may be exposed to hormone disrupting chemicals in medications and medical supplies. And one of the things that they were really talking about was patients in the neonatal intensive care unit actually being exposed to a lot of endocrine disrupting chemicals without them knowing it and how they're really encouraging, you know, hospitals and stuff like that to 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 move towards like getting these chemicals out, which is hard, is really hard. Um, have you done any research or looked into that at all? And do you have any recommendations for medications, which is so hard? <laughs> so that's a great question. And so a lot of these sustained release capsules, they use plastic materials to facilitate the release in a steady pattern. Okay, and of course. <laughs> I'm not suggesting you change your ways of what you are using in your pharmaceuticals. It's true that medical devices, like in newborn intensive care units, some of them use plastic to save babies' lives and ventilate them and feed them. That's not what I'm, I'm not going to be able to address that fully, though. Actually, they're addressing that. They're addressing that by substituting safer materials and Mm -hmm. particularly the leadership of the hospital space, like Healthcare Without Harm has been a great organization in this space getting rid of chemicals of concern and plastics of concern in these devices and focusing on essential uses. And that's what I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. If you need a drug to stay healthy because you have a chronic condition, take the drug. Yeah. Your doctor's telling you to do that. Your healthcare provider, whoever it is, do it. That doesn't change. But there are things around these exposures where you can reduce the non-essential uses of these chemicals that can prevent disease in later life or at least make you healthier. Thank you for that. Okay. So to, um, we're coming up on time here. I want to know a little bit more about your research specifically when it comes to chemical load and connected to, you know, all the things, uh, chronic disease, negative health, negative health consequences for women and kids. Like talk to me a little bit about what you're doing and where people can even find more about your work. Yeah, we, so we have a large scale birth cohort called the NYU Children's Health and Environment Study where we're following moms and kids. It's part of the national program called ECHO, Environmental Influences on Child Health Outcomes where we are trying to collaborate together and work together to find out the environmental and preventable causes of childhood disease and actually try to figure out what makes them healthy. It's not all negative because you can have disease and live a, live a good life. Like you can, there's something called positive health too. 
that's in that mix. Um, a lot of the work we do besides that is focusing, not just, we know a lot. It's about translating what we know and turning it into policies, practices, and procedures that protect us all. So we have a center focused on translating what we know in children's environmental health to the broader public. A lot of the work in that respect over the years has been to document the disease burden and costs of these exposures that contribute, you know, be, and the reason you want to put a cost number on it is these chemicals are being used to make a buck. And there is a, I'm not against Adam Smith. In fact, Adam Smith would be enraged by what's going on when it comes to chemical contamination because mm -hmm. chemicals cause what are called externalities. The person who buys or sells the product doesn't know that there's this health effect. And that is wrecking the proper pricing of the product being sold in a way that it actually reduces the overall economic productivity of society and the proper functioning of the market economy. These externalities are hundreds of billions of dollars in the US, 340 billion, just based on what we know. 2.3% of our gross domestic product being taken away, be wasted because of toxic exposures to all of us. In Europe, it's 163 billion euro a year, 1.2% of the gross domestic product. Some of that is because policies produce changes in exposures exposures contribute to disease and disease costs us all. So a lot of those business case arguments are what get us there when we're making the case. And we've seen differences like the Food Quality Protection Act in the United States actually dropped pesticide levels in kids in their urines hmm. substantially compared to Europe. So that's why the cost of pesticides in Europe for developing brains in kids is 121 billion in Europe, 42 billion in the United States dollars. And that's despite the fact you could you could argue that organic food is more the norm in Europe compared to the U.S., but it's opposite what you would expect. For flame retardants, I got some bad news. Europe actually did the right thing much before the U.S., and so the costs in the U.S. are 240 billion compared to 9 billion in Europe. Mm. So it's those kinds of arguments that we have to prepare for and make that business case for the planet and for human health. And you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do and this is by way of finishing up too, is that a lot of the chemicals we're talking about are petrochemicals, ultimately, they're petrochemical based. And when we talk about climate change is the, the number one human health threat of our future. I agree with that. But number two is these endocrine disrupting chemicals. And it's not like their problems aren't intertwined. If you, you reduce pop fossil fuel consumption, you will do a lot to reduce the disease burden due to endocrine disrupting chemicals. But if you don't go further and reduce that body burden, you will not be able to enjoy a cooler planet the same way previous generations were. And we're already seeing the footprint of chemical contamination. And plastics are a really good example. Um, plastics are not the future. Let's hope not. <laughs> you got to get other people on board with that. <laughs> well, there's a global plastics treaty process that's ongoing through the UN. And there's a, this is actively a jump ball. We're going to see what the planet tries to do. We've seen what's happened with treaty processes and climate change. So keep at it. We have to keep we have to keep raising this issue yeah. and and communicating about it. There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of manufactured doubt out there too, trying to undermine the real science here. Right. Um, 
just like in climate change. It's an old playbook, tobacco, mm-hmm. lead, now climate change, endocrine disruption too. Yeah. Dr. Trisande, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing, first of all, for both women and children coming from the perspective of a mom. But um, also thank you for just spending the time to go through all of these steps by step. I learned a lot. I know everybody listening is going to learn a lot. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. It was a joy doing this. I, this is actually, um, with all due respect to the scientific work, even more fun because that's really where you're going to have the impact. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, Dr. Trasande's website is leotrasande.com. You are very active on Twitter. So I will link to his uh, Twitter and Instagram so you guys can follow him. We'll also have his book in the show notes. For more from me, you can go to coconutsandkettlebells.com and you can find all the podcast notes there. Thanks, guys. We will talk to you next week.